We're just approaching the headstone here now, and uh, I'll read it out if that's okay. Um, in memory of James O'Neill, Bally Garrett Little, who died the 17th of May 1922, aged 52 years. His wife, Alice O'Neill, niece Sheridan, aged 41 years. And their children, Moog, aged 10, Alice, aged 8, Patrick, aged 7, James, aged 6. This is Francis Doyle at a graveyard in Ballygarrett, County Wexford. The children in the grave are members of his family, but he never met any of them. They died long before he was born. George, aged five, Henry, aged four, and Thomas, aged one, who all died tragically on the 24th of December, 1922. People must stand in front of that grave and say, what happened that a whole family would lose their life in, in effectively one night? Free Press, Saturday, December 30th, 1922. Family wiped out. Awful tragedy near Gory. Widow and seven children burned to death. Question of malice. The family was almost wiped out. There was one survivor, eight-year-old Molly. And now, 90 years later, her children and grandchildren tell her story of survival. I first heard the story of little Molly from her granddaughter, Maureen Cuddy. I can't remember a time when I didn't know about the fire. I think the story was ingrained into my DNA and I think the trauma that my grandmother suffered on that night was actually ingrained into all of our DNA. But because of Molly, it generally it wasn't spoken about. It was, it was out of deference to Molly, really. So I would hear whispered conversations about the fire. Molly carried the memory of that night throughout her life. There was always the question, could her family have been killed deliberately? It's suppressed, it's not talked about, it's not mentioned, it's, it's incredible. So I'm not sure if the whole village suffered a trauma that they're actually suppressing. Because it would have affected every single person in that village, there's no two ways about it. <laughs> Many distressing tragedies were reported throughout Ireland during the Christmas season, but none more poignant and terrible than that which occurred at Ballygarrett, about six miles from Gorey on Saturday night or early on Sunday morning, when a widow named Mrs Alice O'Neill and her seven children were all burned to death. I'm in the village of Ballygarrett in County Wexford. It's a few miles south of Courtown Harbour. And I'm outside the house of Maureen Cuddihy. <coughs> Maureen is the daughter of the only surviving member of the family, Molly. Less than seven months before the fire, Molly's father, James O'Neill, had died. 
In uh, May 1922, James O'Neill died from pneumonia. He left uh, my grandmother, a widow, with uh, eight children, six boys and two girls. Molly, who's the eldest, who's my mother. Uh, that spring, of course, they were left with all the work on the farm, hay and all that to be done. So she had some men working. And um, I think she may have found it hard enough now to pay them, you know. Later on that year, she dismissed them, I think. And why did she dismiss them, do you know, or what was the, you know, what might have been going on at the time? Well, I think probably she wasn't, she couldn't afford it, you know, to pay them. So um, she was, accepted the neighbour's help, Jim Kew and his workmen, uh, helped out with the hay and the harvesting and all that, and there was no need for anyone. And um, that that year, later on, during the haymaking and that, when the cows started mowing, the meadows were spiked and uh, damaged cows' machinery. The deceased had about 30 acres of land and three cows. Her meadow field was spiked last summer. Three spikes were put there, and the man, when mowing, found them there. And about 20 potato stalks were pulled in it in June or July last. Spiking the meadows was a deliberate act of vandalism. The spikes are driven into the ground so as to damage the mowing machine. Someone felt a grudge towards Alice. You know, against the odds in very difficult times, Alice worked very hard to keep the farm going. And having worked in tremendously difficult circumstances, this difficulty with respect to these labourers in the village, and um, they took umbrage at the fact that she... I was told, at least, uh, and I know for a fact that Kyo's, the pub down there in the village, is still there going strong, that... um, they were incredibly good to Alice and the family and that Mr Kyo, um, actually I think he harvested her, her crops for her and he tilled the fields for her. And despite the, the adversity, Alice forged ahead and um, it ended in this terrible tragedy. So you have this story of this woman losing her husband, having to cope with all of that and then it all tragically coming to an end on Christmas Eve. So they were going through all these struggles of life, having lost their father or husband and possibly some troubles going on as well. So they were struggling big time. Christmas was just a day away and they must have been looking forward to that, surely, no matter what was coming. Like, was it a slice of bread and jam or whatever? It was was Christmas anyway. (laughs) As Molly's youngest son, Francis, tells me about the hardships the family faced, it's as if the reality of the life his mother lived is just dawning on him. So it's, it's difficult, actually. I never really went back into what it must have been like because the tragedy just kind of put a screen over everything. These kids were playing around the place the day before and, you know, the whole place must have been a buzz with kids and, you know, the usual cut acting and mischief and everything else. 
the tragedy kind of took over all that, but sort of wiped all that away. So it's, it's difficult to even imagine that these were normal people with playing and problems and getting food together. It's amazing. I don't think we've ever sat down as a family, as a whole family in a room and actually talked about this huge event that happened. And I think that was very much out of respect for Molly. But the fire was always a part of the village lore. Frances' wife, Teresa, born in England, remembers hearing the story when she came home to Ballygarrett on her summer holidays. Every summer we used to come and we used to walk past this house where the fire was with my mother and she'd be nudging me going up the road. She'd say, now this is the house with the fire. And she sort of, it's a bit like you don't say the big C word. Just, don't mention it, don't mention it. But this was the house where the fire was. And look there, she says, now there's little Molly Nail. See, her maiden name was Molly O'Neill. And it was, it's sort of, um, uh, what's the word? In, in, in Ireland, they sort of make their own pronunciation. So it's Molly Nail. There's little Molly Nail. Sort of, this was what I was brought up with. And this is the fire, this is Molly, and this is Jim. And we walked by to the shop and walked home again. What she would have told me, it was the more late the night before Christmas Eve or early the morning of Christmas Eve that the actual fire took place. For some reason, she stayed the night with her aunt and that's the only reason she was the sole survivor. A local man, Sylvester Redmond, passed the house around midnight. The house was in total darkness. He passed anyway around 12 o'clock and there was no light whatsoever or anything to be seen around the place. So by half past 12, a neighbour further down, uh, he looked out and he saw the flames, terrible flames down towards the village. So he got on his bicycle and he um, collected another friend there and they arrived down at the house and it was an inferno at that time. They couldn't do anything, but they, they, they alerted the neighbours and all that then. I think they started ringing the bells or something. Robert Doyle gave this to me, the priest here in the parish. That's the copy, this is the actual... <coughs> it says, um, the Free Press, Saturday, December the 30th, 1922. Family wiped out. Awful tragedy near Gory. Widow and seven children burned to death. Question of malice. A blaze was, a blaze first, was observed first observed at Mrs O'Neill's farmstead shortly after midnight on Saturday night by a farmer named Michael Hobbs, who lives about a mile away. Hobbs at once proceeded to his home to get a bicycle and on the way roused a man named David Doyle. On arriving at the scene, they found that the dwelling house was in flames and burning fiercely, the great portion of it having already collapsed. A reek of hay, 18 foot from the dwelling house, was also completely ablaze and was by this time practically gutted. The two men called out to know if there was anybody inside the house, but there was no reply. Owing to the flames which shot out from the thatch and the intense heat, the men were unable to approach the doors or windows and were thus powerless to render assistance, if indeed it was not already too late. They then set out to alarm the villagers, who quickly arrived in large numbers. The very Reverend Canon Jones, PP, was one of the first to arrive and remained for a considerable time. 
Many willing hands fetched buckets of water, which were then thrown on the burning ruins, for the dwelling had now completely collapsed. Remember the night of the fire. Same thing happened last night. Andy Doyle is the oldest resident of Ballygarrett. He went to school with Molly and her siblings. He is the only remaining eyewitness to the fire. My father was home that time for Christmas. And he was after being down in the pub. And came home, when he came home down the lane, he could see the blaze was starting up. He came in toward us, we went up to the place, was a massive light. At that time, it was dark night. The liquid you never saw it was frightening. As I remember, as a child, it was frightening. I lived right direct where the, you know where the fur was. Well, if you look direct at that inland, less than a mile of the cold fly, that's where I live. An awful blaze was out of it. You see the sparks, you see it right down to the ground, near, not too far from you. It appeared, it appeared very near us, the fire did. It was a massive fire. Actually, it was a massive fire, that's what it was. In one room off the kitchen, the four elder boys slept in one bed together, and in the adjoining room, the mother and the three other children, the youngest being only 15 months old. See, the roof fell in. The thatched roof fell in. They probably suffocated, first of all, from the hopefully, anyway, from the smoke, and when this roof fell in, it was burning. Where was Molly at this time? Across the road, with the aunt. The second eldest child, Molly, aged eight and a half years, was staying with her aunt, Mrs Morris, who lived across the road. And to this fact, undoubtedly, owes her life. She remembers fellas, men trying to get horses out of the stable and things like that, and she remembered a priest was on the scene very fast and she seemed to think that he helped in some way to calm the wind which was blowing the, the flames across the road to the house that she had been sleeping in which was putting that in danger and she seemed to be convinced that the priest in some way helped calm the wind. So Father Jones got up on the ladder and he calmed the winds and um, the winds died down and that house survived. How did, how did he calm the winds, sorry? He prayed on the ladder. Yeah, had a great faith in those days. Effectively, I shouldn't be here. My mother, Maureen, shouldn't be here. My wonderful uncles and aunts shouldn't be here. None of us should be here. And it was pure coincidence that Granny went across the yard to look after their elderly aunt on that particular night. It must have been unbelievable for her to stand there and watch the whole thing go up in in that blaze. I, because her memory, her most vivid memory, was hearing the animals in the barns who were trapped in the barns and the horses crying and screaming. And I think that Granny Molly watching it must have blocked out um, the other sounds that invariably must have been coming at that time from the house. I don't know how you could witness that and, and move on from there, like, at any age. Like, she had seven brothers and sisters gone to bed and, she, and her mother and she'd nobody when, when daylight came back in. Like, it's unbelievable. A search was made as soon as possible and a ghastly sight met their gaze when the searchers came upon the charred remains of Mrs O'Neill and her seven children. When the roof collapsed, the burning rose to them to death, you know, they 
both, no flesh on the bones. They, um, the iron bed twisted from the heat. I remember, I think it was my mother, I'm not sure, told me the, the baby, the youngest, which was about a year old, was in the mother's arms, or the, what was left of the mother's arms. And when they went to move the bones of the baby, it literally collapsed into ash. It was completely a cloud of ash. I remember she said that that was how it was, how bad, how hot the fire had burned, like the baby's bones had actually gone to ash. I believe they were gathering all the, gathering up the bones on the Christmas Eve, and uh, they needed just two coffins to put them all into because they were so badly burned. There was nothing, only bones. The tragic occurrence cast a thrill of horror throughout the district, where Mrs O'Neill was known as a quiet, inoffensive woman. I didn't know the morning that the tragedy that it was. Dumbfounded. It was an awful tragedy, you know. It was, uh, people couldn't, couldn't realise such a thing had happened. Couldn't speak. You know, it's um, it, the, the the emotion, obviously, that was there on the night. And I know that the parish priest, the next the, the next morning at mass, he. Uh, he prayed for the souls of the um, of the individuals that were thought to have um, been responsible for committing um, for, for setting the barns on fire. It must have affected every single person in Ballygarret, and it is a small community. After that, then there was seemingly an inquest or an investigation into it. 1922 was a troubled time in Ireland. British troops were leaving Ireland and the civil war was raging. The new police force was in its infancy and criminal investigation was practically non-existent. A coroner's court was convened within days of the fire. On Tuesday afternoon, Dr W.C. Lawler, coroner for North Wexford, held an inquest at the licensed premises of Mr James Keogh, Ballygarrett, Clenevan, into the circumstances connected with the death of Mrs Alice O'Neill and her seven children on the night of the 23rd or morning of the 24th of December. It goes into quite a lot of detail here. Um, seems to be like coroner said this and the foreman said this and Dr Patrick Kinsella Monomalin stated that he'd examined the charred remains of the deceased. It's only so, a few days afterwards. Yeah. Over the Christmas period, they must have had... They must have had a, a quick court case over it then. One juror remarked that it was hard to see where it started and the coroner said yes, but it has been proved here that the wind was blowing from the rick to the dwelling house. So this this happened within a week then. That is literally a week because it was a Saturday, so it was... Well, it looks like if the ricks were badly burned... and uh, If the house... If the ricks were so badly burned, it looks like that it had spread from the ricks to the house because the house obviously was the last to burn. This was the crux of the investigation. Did the fire start in the house, where it could be accidental, or at the rick, which would mean the fire had been set deliberately? The first witness called was Mrs Bridget Morris, Ballygarrett, and she deposed that she was the sister to the deceased, Alice O'Neill, and lived across the road from her. She had been in the deceased's house that Saturday night at 9 o'clock and had left for home about 9.30pm. There was a coal fire on and a paraffin lamp was lighting. The children were all gone to bed and Mrs O'Neill, who was up, had her boots opened 
and was ready to retire for the night. Witness saw her putting out the fire in the kitchen before she left, and there was no light in the two rooms in which the children were. When witness was leaving, the deceased said to her that she would call her in the morning to go to Mass. Because somebody said maybe there was lightning that night, somebody said maybe lightning set on fire. Somebody's given their opinion about the fire and the coroner's, that is very far-fetched. I mean, that's far from being well, see, factual, is it? That's very far-fetched. The jury explored many different possibilities. Lightning, the oil lamp, even that the children might have been smoking at the rick. But it always came back to the vandalism which had been done in the months before the fire. Coroner, was it ever suggested that she would employ a certain man? Witness, that was a common thing. Coroner, that will not do. Was anything else done? The fact that there was so much vandalism going on leading up to it. But then again... You can't see. Replying to the coroner, he said that he knew the deceased and her family and they had no dispute with anyone. Her meadow was spiked in the early part of the year. He did not know that the machine belonging to a Mr Kyo was damaged. There were rumours that potatoes were pulled around, but he did not hear on whom they were pulled. From the reek to the dwelling house would be about 14 feet Asked by the coroner if the fire originated in the dwelling house, would it spread to the reek? The witness said that he could not express any opinion on that. See, people knew all right, but they didn't talk. They wouldn't talk to the guards when they were interviewed. But there was talk when done in a house somewhere. They used to play cards in the houses those days, and there was a talk, all right, a lot of talk, but they wouldn't go as witnesses then, you know. He could not say whether the fire originated in the reek or the dwelling house. Coroner, you would make a very bad witness in a civil court. The witness, on being again pressed for an answer as to where he thought the fire started, said that in his opinion, he believed it originated at the reek. So much hay in the reeks as well, you know. It's fairly well packed, you know. I think it had rained quite a lot too, so they must have been fairly wet now on the outside and attached. You think it would have taken a fair effort well, to start it, a fire there? Well, I'd say it would. The coroner, addressing the jury, said that they had no evidence that the fire was accidentally caused, and according to the evidence, the question of accident was eliminated from it. The coroner, proceeding, said they had gone very fully into the case, which stood out as one of the most appalling and the most tragic that could be heard of. A case in which a poor, simple individual, a poor widow, aged 42 years, and her seven little children could be sent to eternity in a few minutes. Personally, he would go to any length to find out if there was any malice connected with the occurrence. And that was why they were there that day, to try and find out if anyone perpetrated this awful deed. He felt it very keenly when it came to the loss of eight lives. It was simply revolting, the most shocking thing that was ever heard of. Despite the coroner's exhortations, some members of the jury seemed reluctant to accept that the fire could have been started deliberately. The coroner's court required that 12 of the 18 members would vote that it was malicious. 
so that a full investigation could be instigated. It's 11 people did vote that it was malicious and six voted against it and one abstained. Not enough people voted for it to be malicious or accidental to uh, really make a decision. Apparently policing at the time was pretty sparse, uh, possibly black and tans time or whatever from what I can gather, so there was a bit of investigative work done, but nothing ever went from beyond that. After further discussion, the following verdict was returned. A widow named Mrs Alice O'Neill and her seven children were all burned to death. The fire originated at the reek of hay at the rear of the dwelling. There was no agreement, malicious or accidental. Once the inquest was over, that was, seems to be it was put to rest. There was nobody really... There wasn't enough authority or police or whatever to, to really follow it up or to see that what did happen. It just sort of was let go, I think. Probably as well, because there was probably... Like, she was only a child, and it was only her aunt, really, so there was no men in the family to, to push it either. If, if somebody did want to further investigate, women, I'd say, in the day weren't weren't a great power to get law or, or police work done, I'd say. So maybe that was part of the reason why it wasn't investigated further, but what it is, is now anyway. For me, the most tremendous thing that Molly did was that she would have had an idea, a strong inclination, a strong intuition as to who the alleged perpetrators were with respect to the fire. And she never judged those people and she if anything she insisted that that family um, would be met with grace and respect from all the members of my family so for me I just found this this is this is beyond compassion and it's you know you often hear of people finding the grace to forgive but what Molly did was she didn't even judge in the first place to have to forgive um and and that's a characteristic that you know, I think that's that is pretty rare. So and I think she did that because she was aware that the family, one of the families in particular, were living an exceptionally difficult life. Um and I think they lived in poverty and hardship and she didn't want to add to the hardship that they were experiencing on a day-to-day level. And I think she also accepted that the individuals, it was never malicious in that it was never their intention that anybody should lose their life and that it was something that unfortunately and very tragically got out of hand on the night because of the wind. Well, I know of two, they were cousins, but somebody else said that someone said it was four. Has their lives been... Would you say affected by it as well? Well, you see, I don't know if they were ever told about it or anything like that, you know. But I'm sure they must have picked it up somewhere. But I know the father, who was supposed to have done it, of the children, he gave those his wife and children a terrible life. Terrible life. He's thrown them out, maybe with a young baby. They'd have to go off and try and find somewhere. They, he'd allow them back then and... And the other fellow was the same. He was beat up his wife and everything. But um, I knew him. 
and oh, I didn't like the look of him at all. He was passed by on a bicycle, and uh, he would never look in. He'd never look in at the house. And um, so the fact, when you think about the children, you would say, well, they are not responsible. You know, the relatives would not be responsible. Some of them ended up in our team, a lot of them grew up in our team. One family, the other family, they stayed together anyway. But um, they had a hard life. As I understand, uh, they would have been somewhat ostracised in some ways, or I don't know, there was shadow anyway somewhere, it was a, sort of a darkness just to my memory that there was a darkness around that area but uh, as I say you never know for sure nobody was nobody was convicted so you mightn't even be looking at the right house you know there's, there's always that danger she took the attitude that as it wasn't proven she wasn't going to condemn where, where the law hadn't condemned and she was afraid I think that there was an element if there was an element of doubt then her whole life would be lost blaming somebody maybe in the wrong or something like that. So she seemed to have the ability to choose to let it take its course and she was going to lead her life and not, you know, dwell on it all the time. She seemed to have that ability to, to get on with life rather than dwell on what might have been or blame somebody for what had happened. And I remember one conversation that if, if that fire was set maliciously, even though nobody was charged or went to jail, you know, that person probably lived in hell for the rest of their life anyway, regardless of the law or anything else. How could you how could you have a life after it? Like, even if it was an accident that the house went up, it would be something terrible to carry. And we both agree that if, if somebody done it, somebody suffered for doing it in, in life, if not in law. And one of them was screaming about fire the night he died. He was in the horrors, I believe. He was in such a state when he died, I believe he he was talking about a fire, all right. And what, what was he shouting or what was he saying? He was calling out my grandmother's name. And who told you about that? My mother. Molly. Mm, Molly, yeah. Eight-year-old Molly grew up with her aunt following the fire until she met and married James Doyle in 1934. Molly and James moved back into the farmhouse, rebuilt after the fire, and started to have their own children. Molly died in 1996, but throughout her long life, the events of Christmas Eve 1922 never left her mind. One of her sons, Fergus, is home from Australia. My mother was always, uh, I think, very conscious of, uh, of the fire, you know, it never left her mind. And uh, I remember we had, uh, we talked about it, we heard different stories and that about it, but, uh, you know, it never left her, it never left her mind because uh, when I was in Australia, we had uh, bushfires in Sydney. She must have been so concerned about it that she rang me. Now, she was always struggling to use a telephone, a alone ring Australia. When the phone rang, I couldn't believe it. And the first thing was, are you all right? You're not burnt or anything. And that was amazing to me, you know, that, that I felt that. That was never left her mind, and she saw the fires, and she was so concerned that we might be burnt. 
And uh, it's one of the things that stuck in my memory ever since, that she uh, had never left her mind about the fire. And of course you can understand when she was only nine or eight, whenever they, all this happened, you know. The first real shock I got from my mother was looking at a TV one night uh, on black and white television and there was a fire on the television film and a fella came out of a stable with a horse, with a bag over the horse's head to make it go through the flames and she just fainted, she just dropped like a stone on the floor. And that was the first kind of real shock that I got, how real this was for her, that, that these images could, could invoke that kind of reaction. The effects of the tragedy have lived on after Molly, the sole survivor of the fire, passed away. Molly's daughter-in-law, Teresa, lives with the effect it has on the family. When Francis and I had her, we have two children now, they're 20 and 22, and when they were, babe, when they were like two and three, Francis insisted on fire drills. Now, everybody says they have a fire drill and they have an assembly point, but we used to practice them. I can still see the children. You have to run down the stairs with your eyes closed and you have to run out, and it's that place just over there, across the yard there at that wall. That's where you assemble if there's a fire. And in this house, to this day, we have a smoke alarm in every room, every single room. That could be eight. And when the batteries go, we're going around, which one is it, which one is it? And he has a fire extinguisher, at two fire extinguishers at the back door. We have a smoke blanket there. And we have a fire extinguisher upstairs at the top of the landing. And a few years ago, he bought nine hammers from Lidl and he put them in the bottom left hand of every wardrobe. This is to bang the window with a sharp edge on the top or right or left corner. That's where you smash a window to break it. Don't hit it in the middle because the hammer will rebound back in your face. You smash the window and you put a duvet over the edge so you don't uh, hurt yourself and then you drop down to the floor. And then after... Every now and again, Francis would go around the house. Now I hope none of you have moved those hammers. Now and he'd march into the children's room. Have you got your hammer there? And I'm going, I'm the wife going, oh, I think I've got my hammer there and my shoes are there. They might have knocked it over. And then about five years ago, off he went to Little again and here they had a new style of hammer. So he got rid of all the old hammers and he bought a different hammer, one for every wardrobe. That's the effect. That is the serious everyday effect on Francis to this day about fires. As soon as I could draw breath, and if you ask anybody in the family, they would say that I had this horrendous fear of fire. And um, I, I was unfortunate enough to be in a fire myself then when I was a teenager. And two things happened for me that related right back to the, the original story. The first thing was it was quite cathartic for me that I actually, I was in a fire and survived it. But the second thing was it actually made it really vivid for me because suddenly the story had texture and suddenly I could I was there and I could visualize it because I was in a fire myself so I could hear I could hear crackling which sounded like hot water running through pipes and it was actually the house the house actually on fire the smoke the acrid smell of the smoke in my nostrils um the slates shooting off the roof and the glass exploding. So for me, I actually suddenly I re I, I I had a very vivid image of what it must have been like for my grandmother. And I was a teenager, and and Granny would have been nine. And how petrifying and terrifying that experience must have been for her. After my mother died, I decided. Um to try and organise with the family that we put a marker on the grave of all the people burned in the fire. There was no actual headstone. She had often said she'd like to do it, and I would say, well, we'll do it now, and 
She always kept putting it off for one reason or another. We'll do it in the summer when the days are longer, or we'll do it in the winter when you're not so busy. And she didn't really want to face it, but she would have liked it at the same time. So when she died, I contacted all the family members and everybody agreed we'd put up a headstone. And I went down to Exeter to get the records of the exact dates and dates of births and names. And the girl showed me the actual register that uh, these were actually put into the original entries. And it hit me like a sledgehammer, that just the enormity of this tragedy. For the first time, it really hit me that this was real, like it wasn't just a, a story. Looking back on, on Granny and looking back on Molly and the fact that she was able to, at nine years of age, somehow overcome the tragedy that happened on that particular night and losing all of her family at a time when there was no such thing as grief counselling or therapy or any sort of psychiatric or care and she had no option in this world except to get on with it. And I think that... Um, that spirit in her, I think for me, um, for me, Molly, she just, she was, I thought she was incredible. I thought she was an incredible woman. And um, a lot of us, we look externally and, you know, we look for role models in our life and we look to these incredible, great people that are put up on pedestals. And But often you can find that, you know, real heroes at your doorstep and, I don't know. It's uh, it's. I feel very different when I go down to the grave, uh, down in Dunamore, and uh, it's it's not easy to stand in front of that gravestone and see read out the names of of the children. And um, there's probably about a year or eighteen months between each child, and it's absolutely heartbreaking. And when you look at the date, and um, the, the, there's no indication of what happened on that night. It is. It's a nice. Remembrance will be there for all time, and it helps me to uh, stay connected with with the reality of it, the tragedy of it, and the reality of it, and the fact that I'm only here today because my mother slept across the road that night. My whole family, my whole experience of life, has came out of the fact that she was the only survivor, and uh, you know to be that close in in a, in a family to have been wiped out like it's incredible that the whole thing sprung, our life sprang forth again, like. Oh, 